You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian and this is the school I go to and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. Hey, welcome to the Valentine's Day edition of the Western Science Speaks podcast. The topic of today's show is courtship, mating, and dating. Professors Amanda Mowring from Biology and Jeff Wild from Applied Mathematics make their second appearances on the podcast. Amanda's background is in practical lab work with female fruit flies and studying their social behavior, while Jeff looks at the evolution of behavior. We thought having them on together would be really interesting, and we ended up talking about a lot of really relevant issues like dating apps, big mouth, and more. My housemate Quentin was also in the studio to take pictures and videos for us, so that's who I'm referring to a couple different times throughout the podcast. As you may have heard, we're running a contest for this episode, and at one point in the podcast, there will be a really short commercial break where I'll say the secret phrase that you need to DM to Western Science on Twitter or me on Instagram at henry.standage. Anyway, here we go. Let's, let's start with first impressions. How much impact can a first impression have? In your research, you look at the behavior of female Drosophila. What are they immediately more receptive to? So with Drosophila, the male approaches the female and does a series of things related to courtship. And so there's aspects where he'll tap her, he'll put out a wing and sing a song. And so her impression is very much what are the cues he's giving her. And so she needs some cues. He can't just approach and do nothing. Um, and then what matters is whether he gives her the cues that she likes or not, right? So if you can extrapolate that to humans, right? If somebody starts screaming out ACDC and you're really a soft rock kind of person, that's going to be a turnoff. And flies are the same. So the song has to be something that they expect. And it has to be a good quality song, too, for example. So there's a lot of different cues that the female gets, and then she evaluates them and determines if that's a good male or not. So for them, it's really based on that song. Um, it, no, it's partly song. It's also there's some um, physical interaction. So he, t- he taps her and things like that. There's some pheromones that are involved. So it's more than just the song. Um, we're also limited when we work with animals with the things that we've noticed. So there could be cues that she's getting that we just don't even know, right? Right. So we have to be careful how much we uh, extrapolate from what we're expecting to see into being what the fly is actually seeing. Where do you start to draw parallels between the fly and the human? Well, first you have to be very careful drawing parallels between flies and humans, especially for things that are so complicated and um, variable like mating behaviors, right? Um, so the things that we can draw are that you have a series of inputs, cues, that are evaluated in some way, and that whether or not a female is uh, treating those cues as positives or negatives really depends on her internal state, right? So what's the wiring in her brain to think of those cues as being good or not good? And those things, I think, are very similar in terms of, of how uh, lots of different organisms respond to cues. Right. Jeff, you don't look at flies. How can we judge somebody's sincerity about who they are showing themselves to be when we meet them for the first time? That's a, a great question. And the, the idea goes like this, okay? So if we're going to expect to see a signal about my quality to a female as, as, a, as a mate, if we're going to expect to see that in nature, then it's going to have to be a reliable indicator of my quality. Because if it's not a reliable indicator, then 
my potential mates are just going to ignore it in, in the long run. Right. So what would be an unreliable indicator? An unreliable indicator would be anything that's not costly. So so ah. if you, you, you sort of have to, I think you have to turn this around like a bit of a thought experiment, okay? So if I'm going to signal or if I'm going to advertise my, my quality, I have to do that in a reliable way, right? Otherwise, I'm going to be ignored. And if I do it in a reliable way, then at least from a theoretical perspective, natural selection is going to sharpen a female's um, acuity or a female's ability to decode my advertisement and, and turn the information I'm giving uh, her into um, sort of a, a measure of my own quality. And if I as a male have found the, the best level of advertisement, then as my thought experiment goes, and I, I shouldn't, it shouldn't pay me to advertise uh, a little bit more. It shouldn't pay me to sing my soft rock song a little more loudly or play my ACDC a little more quietly. So right? another way to phrase that, too, is the reason why a lot in the animal world, a lot of traits are costly or the ones that females evaluate is because it's hard to cheat on those, right? So if it's the largest males get the most yes. mates, it's hard for a smaller male to pretend that he's a larger male. So it's really hard to cheat on those most of those quality indicators. To get back to your question about dishonesty in humans, right? So how do you know if someone's honestly presenting themselves? This sort of feeds back into that notion of it's hard to relate some of the things we find in animal models back to humans because humans have the ability to consciously alter mm -hmm. the behavior that otherwise we're somewhat programmed to have, that they can override that. And so we have more complexity in a lot of ways in those mating signals because humans have the ability to cheat on some of these subtle indicators because we use a lot of mm. more subtle indicators in human mating. Right. And so somebody who's had, say, a lot of bad experiences with not being able to spot a facade early on is probably more likely to be better at judging a mate. Is that fair? Maybe. I don't know if that's fair. It might mean an indication that they aren't very good at yeah, judging, yeah. right? So it's hard to know. But what it might mean is they might look then for even stronger cues mm -hmm. than they would otherwise. So they're not going to be satisfied with those sort of lower level cues. They're going to want the ones that are hard to fake, mm -hmm. right? To convince them that, that this is the real deal. Yeah. And I want to talk to you about <coughs> the portion of your work that looks at the genetic and cellular basis for a lot of behavior. I'm interested to know how the receptivity of a female or their aggression to courting a potential mate can evolve over their lifespan. Yeah, so essentially how within a single individual does that change over time? Is it always the same or does it shift? It changes a fair bit, right? So if a female has already mated, she's going to be far less receptive than if she's never mated. And this makes sense in terms of fitness if you have to make offspring you got to have some mating to get there. So females are going to be much more willing to mate when they're virgin than when they've already been mated um, and have fertilization occurring. Um, but also it changes with age. So females, as they age, have a shift in how receptive they are. And there's this really fascinating aspect that even in flies, we see aspects of the social environment influencing their mating. So if a female observes a male mating another female, she's more likely to mate with that male than a random male. So there's some social learning even in flies, which is really fascinating. Uh, just recognizing a face or... Yeah, well, and, and that they've been successful. So essentially it's that if that male was successful with that other female, well, he must be pretty good. I'll take her assessment to flavor my own assessment, right? So it's interesting um, that that's possible even within something as simple as a fruit fly. 
Is there a chance an element of that might be subconscious? Maybe it's not somebody who you, you know, blatantly saw and you kind of went, oh, that's that person. Oh, you mean, you in, just, you mean in humans? Yeah, you you maybe don't fully consciously recognize that you know this person, but just kind of sensing it somehow. But if you know that somebody has been desired by many other people, you might then raise them in your evaluation mm. compared to a random person, right? This is often how celebrity works, right? That somebody who's a celebrity automatically looks a little bit more attractive because, well, if everyone else likes them, maybe I should like them too. And so we certainly have a lot of evidence in humans that that, how other people perceive somebody influences how we also perceive them. Yeah, that's massive. My housemates, they always ask, what do you think about this girl? And it matters. It has real stock. The aspects of social environment that interest me most are the ones related to genetic kinship. The whole mating endeavor often, well, perhaps not surprisingly, brings males and females into into conflict, right? Uh, conflict over uh, whether the fertilization or the copulation is actually going to take place. And if it takes place, you know, the extent to which, um, well, in some cases, the, the mating is going to to damage one of the other parties and the social the social environment or whether you're you're in nature uh, engaged in some level of inbreeding is going to align those otherwise what impact do you think our experiences in courtship play in future interactions that's a good question again I, I suppose uh, I can I can speculate as a, as a theoretician I can think of examples where the result of previous courtship have a huge impact on on future success I guess one of the more spectacular ones would be the bedbugs. What I know about bedbug mating is that a male will actually pierce the abdomen of the female in order to to inseminate her. Um, that's, a, that's a wound. It's a physical wound, right? And um, that could really uh, have detrimental effects on, on a female's uh, future success. Yeah. So what's really cool about the bedbug story is that females have evolved counter-responses to that, that they actually have evolved an organ at the puncture site that then encapsulates that ejaculate that the male inserts to contain it and keep it from infecting her body, and then Mm -hmm. she can control whether or not it's used for fertilization. And so this comes back to your earlier comment about arms races between males and females and the conflict that can occur between their different motives. And so potentially, eventually, male bedbugs will have a different strategy to try and bypass the female's ability to reject his um, copulation. So it's it's yeah, interesting it's, it's the insane. adaptations. In, in, in insects, uh, these weaponized penises that that some yeah Google some beetle penises and it, it will disturb <laughs> you for a very long time. It's already an open tab on my laptop. <laughs> two two e's though. Two e's. <laughs> when we when we talk about mating, I think just naturally our brains kind of go to the idea of a male having to impress a female. But I'm interested to know, Amanda, how do male Drosophila respond to an aggressive female? Yeah, so one, um, so females are um, sort of unfortunately, historically, a lot of researchers have viewed females as these passive players that either accept or reject male courtship. And of course, we've learned more recently that is absolutely not the case. And so females have all sorts of rejection responses. They'll kick the male's face, they'll just run away, um, and in some cases, they'll be aggressive towards the male. So what's interesting is that when females show aggression towards a male, his Uh, state can really impact how he responds. So if he hasn't had successful matings, even though she's beating him up, he will continue trying to court and mate with her. Um, If, however, he's had a lot of recent matings, then he'll back off a bit. Um, So there's some, some aspect of that. What's interesting with the males is that if they have tried courting a female for a very long time and continue to get rejected, 
it actually makes them then less likely to try and court a brand new female. Yeah, he lost so his mojo. He's 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 essentially gotten the message: I am going to have nothing but rejection. I'm just not going to try. Um, so so we certainly see the males respond to what the female um, gives them as her signal of response to to accepting him or not. Really does impact his later behavior. Jeff and I did a podcast probably about 18 months ago <coughs> about how being nice is actually a surprisingly underrated evolutionary trait. But specifically regarding mating, do you believe this still to be the case? Well, yeah, again, I, I, I just go back to the example of kinship and the potential for inbreeding. And I, I mean, I know, I know there, there's not as much perhaps inbreeding among humans as, as there is in, in nature, but certainly I think there's a lot of inbreeding that happens in nature. And that inbreeding means that you are potentially related to your mate and the shared ancestry means that you have uh, some interest in in the success the, the success of your mate so i think it may not completely eliminate the conflict that we expect to see between the sexes but it certainly will uh, mean that there's a selective advantage towards reducing that conflict yeah, and there's some added aspects with um, species like humans that have offspring that require a huge amount of care. In that case, the, the being nice, the cooperation, is necessary in order to have successful offspring, right? So if you have, um, so birds are a common model for looking at this because when you have these, um, it's called biparental care systems where you need both parents to contribute to raising. If, if you have where one of them doesn't, the offspring don't succeed. And that's not good for you, even if you're trying to be selfish by not contributing. Well, if you don't make offspring, that's not good for you. So um, in a lot of cases, that cooperation aspect is critical for your own fitness, even though it costs you the extra energy of, of contributing and being nice. Um, it's a, a requirement to be successful. So it's interesting that there are certain systems where there's a very strong selection, separately from even the, the inbreeding aspect of your genes, but even in terms of just having offspring that can make it, you need to cooperate in order to have that happen. So then there would be selection for traits that enhance that cooperative right. nature between the sexes. Unselfishness, things like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's still a little bit selfish because you care about your own success, right? right? So it's, it's not even that you have to behave altruistically to have that work, uh, which is great that cooperation <laughs> is good even if you're selfish. All right, for engaged and loyal listeners, here's the part where you can win a $75 gift card to Jack Astor's. Once again, you can DM Western Science on Twitter at WesternUScience or me on Instagram at Henry.Standage. The phrase is, we love science. Back to the podcast. Why is it that fathers seem to invest more in sons and likewise mothers with daughters? Does seeing yourself more in offspring really affect the relationship that much? Well, so... I can't speak to, to humans, so in, in flies they don't they don't see their offspring, right? So there's not a, a physical resemblance like there would be in, in humans. But there is some aspect of um, what your genetic material that's passed on and how related you are to your offspring. A mother is more related to her son than the father is because the X chromosome is larger than the Y chromosome. So you might have a differential parent parental investment due to genetic relatedness. Um, but of course, that would be opposite to what you just said, that you think that, that fathers might invest more in sons. Um, so in the literature, what we see is that that case of which parent invests into which offspring really varies depending on what the environmental conditions are and what the species is that you're looking at. 
So um, what we do see is that there are trends that um, the mother will skew her offspring production towards daughters when conditions are poor and skew it towards sons when conditions are good. Um, so it doesn't have to do with relatedness to the offspring. It has to do with the environmental conditions. A and that's because males, to be successful at mating, again, those cues of what, what's going to allow them to look good to other females often are related to body size. And in poor conditions, you're going to make smaller sons. So if you're not going to have successful sons, well, invest in your daughters then. Make more daughters because you're more likely to have grandchildren, the next generation, in those circumstances. Um, it's hard to relate those kinds of studies back to humans because we don't have any evidence that humans um, have a shift in sex ratios. By uh, At least I don't think so. Um, by no, I don't condition. think there's a significant So I, I don't think there's any evidence that occurs in humans. So there might be other ways that parents invest outside of those. Um, so again, we have to be careful with what we find in animals and, and how much of that we can relate back to humans. I mean, it's, it's a cliche that the father always sees himself in the son. Dad, it's not my dream, it's your dream. <laughs> but Jeff, when you email back, selection has shown that ultimately there's one male for every female. I didn't totally know what you meant, but it sounded very interesting. Well, it, it has to do with some of the, the points Amanda just brought up. That uh, I mean, the, the idea that in many circumstances you would expect roughly a 50-50 sex ratio goes back a long way. Um, and at first glance, it, it might seem um, to be obvious or an obvious consequence of having, uh, say, an XY system of sex determination. But as evolutionary biologists, I think, I think Amanda will agree that we often go beyond, say, proximate, these proximate explanations, these, these um, I'll say for lack of a better term, obvious explanations, and ask why would such a system like a, the XY system evolve? Uh, what would happen if we had sexes determined in a different way, say, like in lizards with temperature. Uh, anyway, the idea itself basically starts with the recognition that in most species, uh, individuals have exactly one mother and exactly one father, at least one biological uh, mother or one biological father. The implication of that is that males as a group have the same or make the same evolutionary contribution to future generations as females as a group. So you could think of these these contributions as like I don't know, half of a pizza or something like pie. Like, like pie. We could yeah, <laughs> pie's a little tastier. So so you could think of all the success that is going to be given to males as half of the pie, and the the other half of the pie is going to represent all the success given to females. Now these halves of the the pies have to be divvied up among the females and among the males in in particular ways, and if if there's more males than females, then every male is going to get a smaller slice of, of the male half of the pie, whereas every female is going to get a slightly larger um, mm. slice of that pie, right? And so there's some uh, selective advantage to producing, in that, in that particular case, uh, daughters because they would get a bigger slice of the evolutionary pie. Um, flip it around, and if there are more females than males, then daughters are going to get a smaller slice of the evolutionary pie. Sons are going to get a larger slice of the evolutionary pie. So, so the shift will go in the opposite direction. And that would kind of you could imagine that ping ponging back and forth until neither sex is is rare. They're equally common. It's a fifty fifty sex ratio. 
a lot of my research is aimed at trying to sort of break some of those tacit assumptions and say, well, what if, what if we can subdivide the female half of the pie among high quality females and low quality females, right? And that's that's kind of this this idea that um, Amanda was was hinting at that if there are high if if there are high quality females out there and you are yourself a high quality female and you can produce high quality daughters, then perhaps perhaps you would as a mother want to invest more in, in producing daughters if they can somehow inherit some of your, your high quality. And you could, <coughs> you could make a, an analogous argument with, with fathers and sons or mothers and sons and you could kind of connect them. So what's interesting about the different sexes in terms of reproduction is that in most cases, females are the limiting resource, that there's only so many eggs that can be produced because they're very expensive to make overall. And of course, there's exceptions to this. What do you mean by expensive? I mean, a single egg. So to make an offspring, you need a single egg and a single sperm. That sperm takes far less energy to make than the egg because the egg's much larger. It requires more proteins. It's much larger um, gamete. And of course, again, there's exceptions to this in, in different species. So this is just on average. Um, so in that case, you can have a female maybe can make, um, so I think the largest number of offspring for a human female was something like 60 offspring, which is a bit mind-blowing, I have to say. This even is that a amount, a human female, yes. But the, oh the largest God. number of offspring... <laughs> my jaw dropped too. <laughs> but the largest number of offspring for a male was something like 800 offspring. Because that male, when he mates with multiple females, each of those females can potentially reach their maximum number of offspring. Whereas a single female mating with multiple males can't increase mm, her number of offspring to the same lower. amount, right? So there's, um, so there's a different limitation on female reproduction than there is on male reproduction. So this comes into that selection aspect. So you're a female, you have some limited resources of how many offspring you personally can make, well, you want them to be the best. You want to make the best offspring you can make because you don't have unlimited tries here. So if there's one rock star, fantastic, amazing male, well, yeah, you're going to choose that male. And the female next to you might also choose that male. And the female next to her might also choose that male. So even though, um, like we were talking earlier about the pie divided between males and females, even though it's possible that each male could get their own slice of that reproductive pie, it's also possible a single male can get that entire half of that reproductive pie if all of the females choose him. And so we see this sometimes in species um, like elephant seals. Well, you'll have one breeding male that has, it's called a harem, all of these females. And the other males that aren't the ones that dominated that don't get matings. Or maybe they'll rarely get matings if they sneak one in. And so you can even have literally a single male be the one that fertilizes all of the offspring within that group. Whereas for females, again, they're more limited, so it's not set up the same way. Uh, so it's an interesting uh, limitation. Yeah, there's a Vince Vaughn movie about this, where he's the father of 530 children. Is that through sperm donation, I'm guessing? I, I think it's all different women that uh, he spent he nights with when he was younger. Really, I haven't really seen the movie, but I remember seeing the trailer at 14 and thinking it was the greatest idea for a film I'd ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> True or false? Compared to all the other species out there that enjoy mating and courtship, we are not shallow. We are deeper than them in how we go about it. I think you could answer that question <coughs> both ways. So on the one hand, we have consciousness, 
right? So we have a lot of thought about the decisions we make. We aren't just beholden to our impulses, right? At least most people aren't. Um, so on that perspective, yes, we have a lot of a, a deeper thought process involved in who we're going to mate with. On the other hand, at least in modern times, not every mating is reproduction, right? So with, mm. with the advent of birth control, those mating decisions do not have to be linked to offspring fitness. And so from that perspective, we can be incredibly shallow about it because it's purely about sex. It doesn't have to be about reproduction. So I think you could argue for both sides of that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Do you think in some ways we are as predictable as a Drosophila? No, no, again, because we have consciousness, right? So people have their past experience and can have that past experience be something that they let flavor their current behavior, or they can consciously override that past experience and have it not affect mm -hmm. their current behavior. And flies don't do that, right? Their past experience in a relatively predictable way influences yeah. their behavior. So um, while there's still variation in behavior, I think it's far more predictable in something like an insect than it is in, in humans. We're complex. Humans yeah. are messy. Yeah. But at the same time, say say me and Quentin go out, and I know for a fact that Quentin has a history with girls with green hair and tattoos, and I see a girl at the bar with green hair and tattoos, I'm probably going to feel pretty sure that he's going to be interested in her. That's yeah. crazy specific. <laughs> but again, what if he approaches her and she just stinks to high heaven, right? He might be like, okay, no, yeah. I'm good. Right. Or maybe he's liked those girls all in the past, but the last one he was with really broke his heart. Mm. And so now he sees her and he's like, I'm going to hesitate on that because I just I'm, I'm, it's too raw. Right. So, again, humans are messy. Right. What, what's the, the bit in your research where that you've got the headless? Is there a headless female fly? No. Well, we have. So we have some other stuff we've done recently with aggression where we can make females hyper aggressive by stimulating certain neurons in their brain and they'll beat up males that approach them. Um, it's actually amusing to watch. Um, but we'll even put headless males in there with them, and she will kick the crap out of those headless decapitated say, males. So does that say to you that there's just that hard, almost hardwired aspect to fly behavior that we at least like to think we don't always fall prey to as humans? That there's, there's Is that evidence that we're clearly more complex than a fly? Oh, I, I don't even think you need that as evidence. No, I think there's lots of evidence that yeah. humans are more complex. So certainly we can activate certain neurons and cause behaviors to occur in flies. Um, it's hard to say whether that's different than in humans because we don't have the ability to do those same experiments in humans or the ethics to yeah, do that same experiment we, in humans. Right. So it is possible that if you stimulate a certain neuron in a human brain, you might also get a very particular response. I think what's more complicated is there's far more neurons and neural connections. So whether that neuron gets stimulated or not is going to be much more variable in a human because it's not just going to be, did you get that particular cue or information? It's also going to be how you process it as either a positive or negative thing. The context, all of that is going to be much more complicated in a human brain than in a fly brain. So, so I, I, I don't know actually that we can say for sure that we wouldn't see that same response in humans because we haven't done that experiment, so we don't know. In, in some ways, the dating apps are our way of kind of testing these things. And Jeff and I were talking about them a little bit on the way here, but there's a dating app. Um, you guys Not might. based on Jeff's experience, though, because... Yeah. No, because, Je yeah, <laughs> this, Jeff... This is why I might be listening. No, so. <laughs> but... <laughs> 
the way the dating app distinguished themselves from one another is actually really interesting. So there's obviously Tinder, which is you've probably heard of the most classic one. Swipe right if you find them attractive, swipe left if not. But then there's one called Bumble, where if you match with them, the female has to message the guy first. The guy can't message her first. So it's one where girls are asked to show more aggressiveness because usually it's the guy who sends the first message. I don't know if I'd call sending a message aggressive. It's just communicating. I know. Okay. I know. It also matches our assumptions, People right? People overthink that, these that things, though. Females are the choosier. They, they're making the greater investment. Yeah, and I mean, the reason why Bumble exists is because males are more likely to just message everything that looks good. Yes. And females don't like receiving all of those messages from a bunch of males they wouldn't be interested in. So... Exactly. It fits exactly that concept of who's going to be more um, assertive uh, in putting themselves forward. And again, on average, right? Of course, there's a lot of very assertive females and a lot of non-assertive males So, in humans, right? So we see a lot of variation in that. Yeah. And I'm sure most of them are on Bumble. (laughs) (laughs) I'm interested to know how courtship or mating has changed pre and post the internet revolution. So the the interesting thing with the internet is that people are um, increasingly meeting people digitally first. So again, we talked about those cues that people get, the signals, are they honest? And it's a way for someone to be kind of dishonest about their signals if they want to use filters to make themselves look better, for example. But of course, again, in terms of things like reproduction, eventually you have to meet in person, right? Mm. For, for, For the deed to occur. So Um, So that only goes so far. And I think even in that case, then you might get an even stronger rejection because of the dishonesty, right? When it becomes clear that that was a dishonest cue that was given online, then the moment you meet in person, the person is going to be even more shocked and put off by the absence of filter than they would have been if they just had the honesty up front. Another interesting aspect about the internet um, is that it's changed what people consider normal in relationships uh, because, and I'm I'm not sure if this can be part of this broadcast or not, but because of internet pornography, it has really changed the way that people view sexual relations with other people um, in a way that's largely uh, negative because a lot of pornography is, is quite violent towards women. Um, and that's really concerning that this is without the context of, of knowing kind of more broadly what relationships and what sexual interactions should look like in a healthy mm-hmm. relationship. If people don't have that context, then they might think that that's what they should be expecting in a relationship. Um, so I worry, especially for you know younger people where this is their entire context, if they don't get that extra information, that it's, it's very concerning then what that will do to their perception of relationships as they move forward. Yeah. The roles of men and women differ in traditional courtship rituals. To what degree are they universal? And are there evolutionary theories about such roles? There's a tradition uh, of thought in evolutionary biology that says that, you know, there's a, there's a role for manipulation and, and deceit in animal communication, including communication over, over mating. However, um, in the long run, I think we have good reason to expect that signaling, especially signaling of quality, mate, mate quality, is, is going to be honest. Now, whether it's going to be become honest on the timescales that we were talking about or the timescales that are relevant to uh, our, our or one's experience with dating apps uh, is a 
separate question, but say over millennia, um, perhaps I have a perhaps I have too much confidence in in natural selection. But over millennia, I think we can expect it it would would sort itself out. That you know, if if a cue to my quality is reliable, females are going to respond to or respond to that cue or that signal, right? If and they should be responding to the signal in the quote unquote correct way, and if they're responding positively to my signal and it's not going to just get out of control, I'm not going to be screaming my head off with with ACDC, then it's going to have to cost me something. And those costs are going to have to kind of keep up with with the benefits that that signaling um, brings me. And so so uh, I guess that that that's the the, the base of the handicap principle, right? That, that these costs are going to accelerate uh, in order to enforce right. honesty in the long run. Yeah, and, and related back to that cost then is also who's going to be the one to expend more cost in trying to get that mating. And we often see differences between the sexes in many species, depending on who invests more in the offspring. Um, so in, in most species, you see females investing more in the production of the egg. So therefore, the males are going to have to convince them that they're the right male, which means the males are going to spend more on that convincing part, on trying to show that they're the best male. But we see cases that are the opposite. There's some species where males are the limiting resource, and then females compete with each other to get the male. Um, I think in humans, it's interesting because we've shifted in more recent years towards a far more equal contribution to childcare than what perhaps was occurring 100 years ago even. And I think that has impacted the cues and the traits that are considered favorable in in a partner in terms of uh, reproduction at least. And so it's been interesting seeing that sort of social shift over the last, you know, 50 years or so. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see what happens down the line the further that we go. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. just speaking from my own experiences as a parent, even even the, the behaviors related to child care are themselves a, a, a signal that's that's totally gender dependent, right? I mean, I take my kids to the, I take my kids to the park and um, I'm treated as a hero. <laughs> Honestly, I uh, yeah. So the societal you know, like, rewards wow. for contributing to childcare, it's true. <laughs> if you just do um, <laughs> hero I, for showing up is what my wife says. Yes. Yeah. Oh my. Yes. That is absolutely. <laughs> that is absolutely. I I will say that. So I'm I'm the breadwinner in my family. Um, I hear so often how lucky I am to have a husband who contributes to childcare. My husband has never once in his entire life been told how lucky he is to have a wife who provides. Right. So that that perception is certainly societally influences how those different roles are valued mm. within a relationship uh, in terms of the, the kudos that you get for doing them. And, and there are lens through which we view these sig- these purported signals. Yeah. Right. And, uh, I'm interested to look at. So say arranged marriages, which are kind of used as like this villainous plot device in a lot of movies from western culture neither the male or the female needs to be the one who's the aggressor or the initiator it's it's they're both kind of neutral well it's essentially the parents are evaluating the cues in that case rather than the individuals last question we'll end with this is it fair to assume on a first date that somebody else isn't being a hundred percent themselves and because of that you don't have a responsibility to either well i guess so on a first date if you are both trying to feel out, is this person a potential partner? Yeah. Um, you're going to want to present your best side, right? And the best side of you that you think that other person will think is your best side. 
Again, it's in your interest to have honesty associated with that because, again, if you have any goal towards a longer-term relationship, the real you will come out, right? So you don't yeah. want to be dishonest. But is it dishonest to just try and put your best foot forward? I don't know if I'd go that far. I mean, certainly in job interviews, we do that in lots of areas. So um, I, I commend people who try and show their best selves in yeah. interactions. Yeah, I'd say I'd say if they're speaking as first of all as someone who's had a lot of first dates and not many second ones, um, <laughs> I would say that um, if there's going to be an opportunity to be dishonest, it's going to it's probably going to be most profitable in in the early stages of a relationship, right? As those as those costs accumulate, I'm I'm committed to this adaptive story that I've been telling. So as those costs accumulate. Um, it's going to be harder and harder to keep up that facade, and the truth will come out. I suspect. Yeah. yeah. Well, take Quentin for instance. He always <laughs> t- it's like your <laughs> Quentin is your punching bag, right? Okay. Quentin uh, thinks his best side is speaking in a pirate voice on first dates, and we always tell him you shouldn't do that, man. Well, it depends on who he's trying to convince, yeah. right? If she shows up <laughs> with an eye patch. And a pirate hat, <laughs> and green hair, and green you that you that might be a completely winning strategy. <laughs> All right, well we'll end it there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. If you liked it, share it with your friends, or check us out on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean for more episodes. We also air bi-weekly Mondays at eleven thirty on Radio Western. We'll announce the winner of the giveaway later this week, so stay posted for that. I'm Henry Standage signing out. Have a wonderful Valentine's Day.